0: From WNET in New York, I'm Tom Stewart, and this is WNET Up Next, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes for a look at what's happening inside the world of public media and helps you get to know the people who create our programs. Today we begin a two-part series devoted to a new multi-platform initiative called The Talk, Race in America.
1: I give the talk to any young person in my family.
0: It is a survival conversation.
1: If they ask you to do
0: something, do it. Be respectful. Make sure your hands are showing. I want to make sure you come home. When you become a father of a black boy in this country, this is a part of the terrain. Uh, A kid shouldn't see a cop as a threat. He ought to see that individual as somebody that can help him. Those voices are among the many heard in The Talk, Race in America. And our guest today is someone who's been with the project since its very beginning. The winner of many awards, including Emmys and Peabody's, Julie Anderson is The Talk's executive producer. Julie, thanks so much for being with us here on WNET Up Next.
1: Tom, thank you so much for having me on.
0: Now, those voices we just heard give us some idea of what the premise of The Talk is, but can you explain what, what is the premise of the program?
1: Yes, well... In the African-American community, historically, there has always been this conversation that is pretty much confined to the African-American home, which is what your children should do if they are stopped by the police. And clearly, young African-American boys are stopped more often than young African-American girls. And the conversation goes something like, if you're ever stopped by the police, here's what I want you to do. Don't put your hands in your pockets don't talk back, answer yes, sir, no, sir, don't make any sudden movements, do whatever they tell you to do. And the point of that conversation is to make sure that the child doesn't do anything sudden that would cause a police officer to feel like they may have a weapon and that they may be threatening and possibly cause the unintended shooting and death. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a conversation that's not really talked about outside of the African-American community, and we wanted to bring it out, talk about it, let people know that this is an opportunity to discuss race, which is often a very uncomfortable subject for people.
0: So it's it's really the idea of the talk leads into a much larger discussion of race in America.
1: Absolutely, and these are very complicated issues because from the law enforcement side— It's a dangerous job. They put their lives on the line every single day. They have children, too. They want to go home at the end of the day, too. So if there's a perception of menace or a perception of danger, both sides are going to react to it very quickly. And we're trying to get this conversation out because maybe there's a way to avoid what are essentially accidents in the end.
0: It's very interesting. I I recollect there's so many wonderful things in the program Uh, including commentary by uh, people such as uh, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, who uh, was a police officer himself. And he had uh, an expression uh, that apparently was popular uh, among police, which essentially says, I would rather be judged by 12 than carried by 6, which uh, the translation means the concern is, I don't want to get killed here. Mm -hmm. I want to live so I might err on the side of acting too rapidly.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, We read about that in part of our research, that that was sort of a thought that police officers have because every day they encounter danger. And every day they have to make a split-second decision as to how to handle danger. And in their training, they're trained to position themselves in a safe position, either behind the door of their car or far enough away. They're trained to approach an incident and protect themselves at the same time, and often that's not possible. So these split-second decisions, your first response is to protect yourself, I think. And police officers feel that often if they're protecting themselves, it's justified. And that's what they're told in their training, that if, if it's self-defense, or the suspect is threatening the community or any other person's life, then they are justified.
0: But we have cases in this film where there obviously is no justification. Southern California, the Ramirez family uh, talks of Oscar Ramirez Jr. who was killed by police. And the answer there, did you think he was threatening? And the only thing that the defendant could come up with was, I thought he had a gun
1: hmm Yes.
0: Uh, and that's no evidence at all, and, and tragedies happen.
1: Yeah, so, so in the end, he didn't have a gun, but the officer who was following him didn't know whether he had a gun or not. And so in this case, because he thought he had a gun, he shot. There's no video of that, so we really can't analyze that. We kind of have to go with what the police officer has said. In the case of Tamir Rice, who was shot... At close range by a police officer, he was playing with a toy gun. The police officer believed him to be armed. However, the police officer also pulled up to the park. He was standing maybe five feet away from Tamir when he pulled his trigger. And when other training police officers looked at that, they said that he should not have gone so close to Tamir. He put himself in danger, and therefore he ended up shooting first. That could have been avoided had the police officer not approached the scene so rapidly and had not gotten so close to Tamir.
0: It's very interesting. There are so many compelling stories in this film. How did the idea really first come up to to put this on film?
1: Well, I'd like to say it was my idea, but it was not. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I don't have brothers, I only have one sister. I'm half African-American, and I, I grew up in a very safe suburb, so this wasn't something that had ever come up. We didn't have that talk in our family, but other families that we knew that were friends of my parents who had kids my age, they did have the talk with them. But the Corporation for Public Broadcasting had asked us to look into developing a show around this story. And Sam and I worked together developing the show. We, we both have shared thoughts on these issues. And um, we wrote the proposal together. We did all the research together. And we settled on these particular stories.
0: Mm-hmm. And you're referring to Sam Pollard, whom mm. we are going to talk to in our next episode yes. of WNAT. Up Next. Yes. So take me into a little bit of the nuts and bolts of, of that process. You have an idea to do this film. Mm. Uh, you get support from Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Mm-hmm. What What are the next steps that, mm-hmm. that you take
1: after mm-hmm. that? Well, actually, the first thing I did was I Googled the talk, mm-hmm. and then I added the word black. And I looked at what came up from Googling the word the talk and black, and then I started researching from there. The first things that came up were a lot of commentary. Um the Tanahisi Coates book came up obviously because that had just been published and you
0: have to explain that to me. I don't know what that
1: is. So Tanahisi Coates is a writer, he often writes for The New Yorker. He published a book right around the time we were starting this project, so about a year and a half ago. And the book is essentially a letter to his son about how to be a black man in this world. Mm-hmm. That book got a lot of attention. He certainly deals with the issue of the talk in his book and how his son can survive and flourish as a black man in this country. So the book is a lot about race and the complexities of race relations. So we, I read the book and started going down that trail is Googling, reading, pulling articles, looking at videos. And in the end, we had a notebook about four or five inches thick of articles we had pulled And we had a a file with a list of videos to look at. And we gathered our team together and we spent two days looking at the videos, reading through the articles. And then we had a big meeting where we talked through what we thought were the most interesting, compelling stories. We wanted a little bit of a balance of stories that were part of the national conversation, which was the Tamir Rice story. But we also wanted untold, unheard of stories, which we thought was very important because We wanted to make sure people knew that the stories you heard of are not all of the stories. These incidences are happening all over the country. So the rest of the stories were not big headlines but came up in our research. And we also wanted to make sure we got the law enforcement side of the story. So we filmed one of our stories at the police training academy in South Carolina, where we looked at how they train for when to use lethal force, what to look out for. They have a very interesting test where um, there's a screen in front of the police officer. They're inside a room, and this woman comes around the corner. She has a knife in her hand. She's yelling and screaming, and the police officer is holding his gun, pointed at her, and he asks her to get rid of the knife because that's a weapon. So she finally throws the knife away, and she reaches into her back pocket very quickly. And what she pulls out of her back pocket is a bottle, of water, soda, whatever it is, and the police officer, it, it's meant to trigger, that could be a gun, mm-hmm. right? So, the police officer literally has two seconds to decide whether or not she is going to bring out a weapon and shoot him. So, they drill them through these moments where you have split second to make a decision, and you can see the stress. And the police officer in our piece did not pull his trigger, but when the exercise was over, he was definitely... Shaken. Shaken by what he had almost done. And this is just a training exercise. This
0: was in the uh, South Carolina uh, School of Criminal Justice where they train.
1: Exactly. uh, They -hmm. they, they, they train train them. Yes, the police training academy. And I will add that one other thing we learned in our research is that there is no national training program. Each state sets its own training program. And sometimes that is affected by the budget they have. How long can they keep a recruit in training? This particular program is 12 weeks, and then they're out on the street. So it's a, it's an intense training program. You have a lot to learn in 12 weeks. They do diversity training. They do domestic violence training, traffic stop training, shooting, and really a lot about how to handle people and de-escalate the situation. That's what constantly happens in each one of these scenarios where they're trained, de-escalate the situation. Now, it doesn't always happen that way once they get out in the real world. And they live under a lot of stress, and sometimes the stress builds up, and sometimes things happen that you had not intended to happen. I mean, all of us have experienced that. But um, I think from the African-American perspective, they feel that maybe – it's a quicker response than it might be for a non-African-American person.
0: Right. I think Tamir Rice's mom definitely felt that, had her son been white, mm-hmm. uh, it it just would not have happened.
1: Yeah, she said that. Yeah, she feels that. Yeah, she lives in an African-American community. You know, often um, in communities where we no longer have a cop walking the beat like we used to have, so police officers are driving around in patrol cars and they're unable to make um, any community type of relationship in the areas that they're patrolling. And so 100% of their time, they're dealing with a suspect, not with just someone who they're casually bumping into on the street and asking how their kid or their dog is. And I so, think that's
0: stressed in another area of the film, mm-hmm. that if the police... Were actually members of the community mm-hmm. and actually lived at the community, mm-hmm. that uh, the results would be different.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's not always a possibility, but certainly that would be the ideal.
0: Did the project take off in any directions that you hadn't foreseen?
1: There's a final piece in the show which is about a um, couple. The wife Nancy is Hispanic, and her husband Amir is African American. They are married, and they both converted to Islam as adults. So this is the most blended family you could imagine, and they have a five-year-old son who is all of those things. And they pray every morning, and he has his own little prayer mat, and he prays with his family. He goes to a special, very international school where they speak a lot of different languages. And that story was not originally intended to be in the film, but in the end, it feels like... We're looking at a lot of what is the future, which is these very blended families. And it goes beyond race. It goes into gender. It goes into religion, everything. We're we're just a very blended country here. And so that, as the final piece, felt like this is us looking into the future, looking at the ways that communities can resolve their issues.
0: I know that so much of this is the film, which is premiering, on Monday, February 20th, on PBS. But in addition to the actual film, I mentioned this is a multi-platform initiative.
1: Well, um, first of all, I'd like to mention the minority consortia. There are five minority consortia that CPB supports, and they are each doing a short film of their own, centered around, with the topic being the talk. However, they're all quite different. There's the Pacific Islanders, Um, Chinese American, Native American, African American, and Latino public media. So each one of them is doing a short film. Those are going to go up on our website over the next couple of months. And we're doing an extended outreach campaign post-broadcast, which is going to be doing events with our stations across the country, our local stations, and we'll be providing grants to the stations to do events in their own communities. And we'll be working with facilitators to help bring these conversations together and have a very positive experience. So they may screen the film or part of the film. They may have someone from the film there to do a Q&A. They may have community organizers who are in this space to get everyone talking. PBS has a great opportunity to reach grassroots levels all over the country because of our local stations. So we're partnering with them after broadcast to do as many events as this we can. So this is a nation-
0: nationwide effort to further this, this conversation yes, that this is absolutely. stimulating. It yes. Absolutely, Sounds great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what is the Twitter? I know there's a Twitter thing, too. <laughs> everybody a Twitter everybody thing. <laughs> talks Twitter these days. We might as well talk our Twitter. There's
1: a lot of Twitter. <laughs> So, yeah, we have a Twitter campaign, we have a Tumblr campaign, we have a Facebook campaign, and we have a digital website campaign. And beginning with our digital website, which is pbs.org the talk, it's an interactive website where you can leave your own stories about the talk, your own experiences about the talk. There's additional video clips that are not in the shows. For instance, we interspersed between the pieces are five celebrities.
0: Yes, I wanted to ask you about those. Yeah,
1: so there are Charles Blow, who's a New York Times columnist, Kenya Barris, who's the executive producer of the ABC hit series Blackish, which won a Peabody last year. He's in the show because he did a whole episode on The Talk Mm -hmm. the year before last. Rosie Perez, Nas, and the director of Boys in the Hood, John Singleton. So each one of those people gave us over an hour of their time on this topic. And very little of that, of course, ever makes it into the film. But the website is a great opportunity for us to add additional stories from each one of our, our celebrities. So those are on the site. And additionally, we are we're pulling some other stories from the other people who appear in the film. And then, of course, there's a Twitter campaign. We're also doing a Tumblr campaign, which is an event with Tumblr, a screening event, a live screening event, we'll, we'll be taking questions from oh, outside and we're hoping to have as many people from the film there who will be on the Q&A panel. And uh, Facebook, obviously we have a great Facebook site that anybody can go on and see more videos and more information and more stories.
0: And so this is all accessed by going to uh, PBS slash the talk?
1: PBS.org slash. PBS.org slash the talk. Thanks, yes. thanks. Yeah. And then also the same on Facebook, pbs.org slash the talk. Facebook will bring you there.
0: You mentioned Nas, uh, and in the in the film. Something that struck me very personally, because he talks about his conversation with a Jewish friend of his mm. who had never been pulled over or stopped by the police. And to Naz. This was like, we're living in, in totally different universes. Mm-hmm. And except for being pulled over sp- for speeding and running a stoplight mm-hmm. uh, when I was younger, uh, <laughs> a couple years ago, that's my uh, sense, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just thought that was very interesting to bring that up and for people who are not African-American to have a better understanding of what it's like you know, to sort of try to put yourself in these situations Indeed. because it's so alien to your own privileged mm. uh, experience.
1: Indeed. Um, it's interesting talking to someone like Nas who's a poet, right? He's a writer and a poet, and it comes out when he starts to speak passionately on these issues. And I felt like while we were talking to Nas, that it's almost like he was writing a poem or a song as things were coming out of him. And yes, he said it, it was interesting because it kind of crystallized the whole point we're making with the talk, which is an African-American male may have a completely different experience with law enforcement than you do, only because his skin is black, yes. right? And Nas says, we're living right next to each other and we're living in a whole different world. And it's important to understand that. And I think he understands that really well without a sense at all of any anger or reproach, but with a sense of almost, this is my world and I want you to understand my world and I want to share my, under- my world with you.
0: I think obviously that's what you're able to do with this film. Yes. Then there are the stories from Rosie Perez. And I was struck again, this is uh, something that I don't think of, the Latino community having the same challenges in Mm -hmm. this area.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, because Rosie grew up in Brooklyn, and she went out to the West Coast, to Los Angeles, to start her career as a dancer. And so she's in college, hanging out with her college friends, going to dance clubs at night. You know, she was a choreographer. Mm -hmm. So um, she... And her friends were essentially put up against the wall by some cops at a club. And her friend explained to her, her reaction was, what's going on? We didn't do anything. What's going on? And her friend said, be quiet. This is because you're Hispanic and I'm black. And she had this conversation with her friends about how different law enforcement was in L.A. versus New York in terms of the Hispanic community. So what she was saying is the West Coast has a different feel and a different experience than what you might experience here in New York.
0: So what led to the decision to use celebrities as part of your storytellers?
1: I wanted to use celebrities because I think a lot of people have the mistaken idea that because you're famous or rich, you're immune to all of these issues, that you're above it, that this doesn't touch you. And I thought it was important for people to hear from very well-known famous people who they would assume don't have this experience, not only does it humanize them, but it kind of unites everybody. I mean, you would assume that just because you're Nas, you have don't have this experience, or because you're Rosie Perez, or you're Kenya Barris, you know, you're in Hollywood, you're making a ton of money. But all of these people have children too, and they're growing up in a more privileged environment than they are because their parents have achieved a certain amount of success. But the issues are still there. They're still there.
0: So what what overall impact uh, do you hope the film to make?
1: Mm. So, as I said, race is a very complex subject. It's hard to talk about. It, it's uncomfortable for a lot of people. I think when you get into a conversation about race, you're wondering if you're in a safe space. Mm-hmm. Can I say what I really want to say? Can I trust this person to receive what it is I want to say without without getting upset. So I think we're trying to create a safe space to have a conversation about race because we understand the complexities. And the only way to solve these complexities is through working together and being honest and talking these things out.
0: Do you feel that this film and this project is something that one would only find coming from public media?
1: Yes, of course, yeah. I mean, this is the kind of thing that we do. We like to do programming that will affect communities at a grassroots level. And we like to use these films to screen at a grassroots level at our stations all over the country. And we are constantly, with our station relations team, constantly in touch with our stations. We're constantly sharing information about the films that are coming up so they can plan ahead. Mm -hmm. Often they do their own local story related to the larger film. So, for public television, it's very interesting because we can reach these communities and we have direct contact with them. That's great. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: You've had an amazing professional journey Mm -hmm. in media that's led to public media. I know that you were at ESPN and Mm -hmm. HBO and CNN. Mm -hmm. I always recall that it all started with winter sports. Is Mm -hmm. that true?
1: Yeah, that's true. When I graduated from college, I wanted to go to the Olympics. I had been a gymnast, a competitive gymnast in high school and college. I wasn't good enough to be an Olympian, but I had loved the Olympics. It was an important thing to me, and I thought, I wonder how I can go. I just want to go and be at the Olympics. And I figured out the way to go was to work for ABC Sports, who was um, televising the Olympics at the time. And then from ABC, ESPN was just starting, and it was very difficult to get a job at ESPN. There was absolutely no turnover. There were only three networks at the time. And so I was faced with being a production assistant for two, possibly three years. And when ESPN started, I thought this was a way I could fast-track my career. Mm -hmm. They were looking for people who had had network experience. And I was a PA, and they hired me as an associate producer. So right away, I jumped to the next step. And before I knew it, I was a producer. And I was covering college football and college basketball, among other things, tennis, boxing, golf, everything. I developed a skill set by having to do something every single week. Every single week I was researching a piece, shooting a piece, writing a piece, looking for footage for a piece, finalizing a script. So you do that every week and you really develop very sharp skills. And now that I work in documentary film, that skill set is still with me. And I think it helps me be a good decision maker And I think it helps me really look out to see what the end is going to be, even when we're far away from the end. And it helps me in all my planning. And I think I see big picture very much. And I appreciate the training that I got there.
0: So it really has is, uh, is really held you in good stead for what you're doing now. What prompted the shift to, to documentaries and, and public media?
1: Well, I first started doing sports documentaries. So I was at ESPN, and uh, HBO Sports was the only place that was doing long-format documentary films. And I had been doing pieces about athletes and rivalries and all different kinds of stories. And so it was a natural transformation I guess. So I went from ESPN to HBO Sports where I was producing, directing long format documentary sports films. And then of course you know HBO Documentary Films is a really well respected and very ambitious place and they were kind of right next door or, or the floor above me. And I started getting interested in human rights and community issues and larger issues than sports. So I was able to switch over from the sports department to the documentary film department. And I was there for many years. Um, I also managed to produce on the side. And then um, the opportunity to work at WNET came up, very similar position. I was very happy to be able to join this team.
0: What's your overall role here at WNET?
1: I am. My title is I'm the executive producer of documentaries and development. And that means many things. That means I meet filmmakers and listen to their pitches and determine whether or not that's a film we either want or can do and raise the money for, for WNET and ultimately for PBS. I also run the projects when they're in production. So I supervise the budget, the schedule, the contracts, the deliveries, anything around the making of the film and then I also am supervising what we call the outreach campaign which includes our website the social media campaign any educational projects that we do and when I say supervise, I don't mean I'm creating educational programming. We have a whole department that does that. We have a whole department that does web and social media. But I think I'm the person who introduces the project to all of those teams and kind of guide them because of what I know of the background and the information in the film.
0: We call this podcast uh, Up Next, so I'd like to ask what's up next uh, for you in terms of projects here? Mm. <laughs> I know the talk is still, uh, uh, you're still very active. in Yeah, voluntary.
1: very active in the talk. You know, quite honestly, it's been hard to develop new projects because I have this project and another project, which is called American Epic, which is coming out in May, which is a five-part series about the history of recorded music. Mm. So these are both very big projects. They have a very broad reach. There's a lot of moving parts to all of them. So those have been my focus for pretty much the past two years.
0: Sounds great. Congratulations Thank on you so The much. Talk, Race in America. Again, its broadcast premieres on PBS the evening of February 20th. Okay. And for those of you listening, uh, be with us for our next episode. We're also going to be talking about The Talk, Race in America, with the film's director, Sam Pollard. Please share your questions and comments with us at upnext at wnet.org. And, of course, please become a subscriber. WNET Up Next is presented by the Design and On-Air Promotion Department of WNET New York. I'm Tom Stewart, and thanks so much for
1: listening.